Grace has a drenching about it, 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 a wildness about it, a white water riptide turn you upside downness about it. Grace comes after you, rewires you from insecure to God secure, from regret riddle to better because of it. Grace, it's more than we deserve, and it's greater than we imagine, and it's all that we need. Amen. Welcome to week one of our new series, Grace is Greater Than. I'm going to say grace is, and you do the greater in it. Grace is? Greater than. Grace is? Greater than. Is anybody out there? Grace is? Greater than. Amen. Hey, I want to start off with some passages of Scripture written or written by or about people who discovered that grace is greater than over 2,000 years ago. Um, the first is the Apostle Paul. He writes these words. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I will show mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. The next passage is from John, John chapter 8. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Did even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And then in John chapter 4, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. May God bless the reading of his scripture. And I ask you guys if you all stand with me as we, we pray ourselves into the series. Palms open if you're ready to receive, or you don't have to do that necessarily. Okay. God, we love you. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, we thank you that because of Jesus, we're no longer slaves to fear or to anything else. And God, we thank you because of you, God, nothing is wasted. God, and that nothing is too hard for you. And God, that you are loving and that you are wise. And God, that you're here and you love us and you care about us. And Father God, I, I pray that as we launch into this series, it's, it's perhaps uh, your favorite topic, your grace that you'd open up our hearts and minds to receive it fresh, to receive it new. God, I pray that you enable me to speak in a way that brings honor uh, to the greatest thing in the universe, your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and grab your seat. You know, every now and then you, you can find an article about some new word that's been added uh, to a dictionary. Now, as somebody who likes to make up their own words... I find it interesting to see a word that didn't exist or wasn't recognized in vocabulary, and now it is. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I, when I see a new word, I like to try to guess the meaning of the word before I actually read the definition. And so I, I want to give you some words, some new words that, that have been added to a dictionary. Now, note I'm not talking about an academically recognized dictionary, but a dictionary nevertheless. So let me throw out a few words, and let's see if you can guess their definition. Here's the first word. Phonesia. Phonesia. When I first thought this, I thought this was a condition to describe how you always forget where you put your cell phone, right? I have phonesia, all right? The real definition is even better. Uh, 
the act of dialing a phone number and forgetting who you're calling just as they answer, right? Does that ever happen? Uh, phonesia, right? You can use that, right? Like the next time you call someone and, and they say hello and you say, who is it? And they say, like, you called me. You can say, I'm sorry, I just had a case of phonesia, okay? Here's the next word, uh, uh, disconfect. And, and this word could come in handy like around Halloween time when you have a lot of candy around, all right? And, and, and here's the definition. The attempt to sterilize a piece of candy you dropped on the floor by blowing on it. You ever do that? It's okay, Mom and Dad. I've already disconfected it, right? It's totally okay. Okay, here's the next word, blamestorming. Blamestorming. Not brainstorming. Now, 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 brainstorming is where a group of people gather to develop new ideas and strategies to help an organization overcome challenges, to move forward, or to reinvent themselves. And, and, and brainstorming is good. Uh, blamestorming, not so good. Here's the definition. Sitting in a group and discussing who's responsible for the organization's problem rather than trying to solve them. Blamestorming. That's a pretty common thing, right? I mean, people sitting around in circles, around tables, uh, standing in hallways or on debate platforms, and instead of uh, brainstorming to fix the problems, they engage in blamestorming and spend their time trying to fix the blame on other people. Question, have you ever been part of a blame storming session. Anybody? All right. I think we all have. And we have some liars in the room. If, first time visitor, welcome. Okay. Okay. Have you ever been part of a blame storming session that was positive, productive, and God honoring? Probably not. Okay. Last word in taxation, right? In taxation. You know what that means? The euphoria from getting a tax refund which lasts until you realize it's your money to begin with, right? You're like, yay, I'm getting a reef. Wait a second. They've had my money for 12 months, okay? Again, so these are new words, and they tend to get our attention, right, because we've never heard them before. Uh, we're not sure what they mean. However, when we become familiar uh, with the word, after we know it for a while, we tend to overlook it and not pay that much attention to it. I mean, we pretty much just assume that we understand them and what they mean. So we just kind of stick that word on the shelf. We're like, hey, I, I already know that word. But here's what I'm going to ask us to do during the next few weeks in this new series, Grace is Greater Than. I, I want us to approach the word grace as if we've never heard it before, as if we're hearing it and defining it for the very first time. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Kellogg's embarked upon a new marketing campaign for their flagship product. The commercial will begin with a black screen with the words introducing a cereal from Kellogg's. And we then see a man or a woman presented with a bowl of cereal. An individual would not be impressed with the appearance since it, it didn't have fruits or nuts or marshmallows in it. And one of the spots, a, a young guy says rather sarcastically, looks like a bestseller to me. I mean, there's nothing here but flakes. But then after tasting the cereal, he has a change of heart. Then a narrator chimes in, Kellogg's cornflakes. The young man stunned asks, cornflakes? The narrator, the narrator replies, Kellogg's cornflakes. Taste them again for the first time. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what I'd like for us to do with this word grace that we're going to unpack over the next few weeks. I, I want us to taste it again for the first time. Listen, I want us to approach grace as if we've never heard about it 
before. I, I want us to receive it new. Uh, because the fact is, for many of us, grace is a word that we're pretty familiar with. I mean, it's been sitting on the shelf for years, and yeah, yeah, we pull it off the shelf every now and then to sing a song about it or to name a prayer after it, but the truth is, grace no longer amazes us as it should. And in many ways, grace has lost its power and its beauty and its significance in our lives. And understand, Maple Grove, getting grace will make a huge difference and will have a significant impact in our lives and in our walk. Check out what Paul said to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter 1 about the power of getting grace. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It, or grace, is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth, from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Let me give you a getting grace equation. Getting grace equals change lives and the bearing of fruit all over the world. Getting grace equals change lives and the bearing of fruit all over the world. And on the other side of the spectrum, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're warned about the dangers of missing grace. Hebrews 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses out on God's grace, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and thus contaminates many. And, and so I also have, we're doing a lot of math today. Here, here's my missing grace equation. Missing grace equals bitterness, trouble, and the contamination of many. Bitterness and trouble and the contamination of many. See to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. Why? Because when we get grace, our, our lives are changed and, and we're ba we bear fruit all over the world. Why? Because if we miss grace, we have trouble and we have bitterness, trouble and bitterness that doesn't just mess us up, but messes up a bunch of other people. Get it? Good. See to it that no one misses out on God's grace. And, and, and what a tragedy that would be, right? I, I mean, to... I mean, to, to go to church, to, to be a part of a faith community and miss the grace of God. Now, I'm okay with you missing a lot of things, but don't miss this. Don't miss the grace of God. Because we're going to see during the next few weeks, it's grace that makes all the difference. Without grace, there is no gospel. Without grace, there is no hope. Without grace, there is no church. And brothers and sisters, when grace gets missed, when grace isn't present, when, when we remove grace or we replace grace with, with some kind of cheap substitute, do you know what happens? Things get toxic, and they turn toxic in a hurry. Ever been in a graceless relationship? Ever been in a graceless marriage? Ever been in a graceless church? Ever been in a graceless world? Now, I'm calling our first conversation in this series, January 31st, 2016. That's not the title of the series or the sermon. I, I, I do that for a reason because I give the day because someone's going to go, hey, you know what? On, on Did I say December or did I say January? Thank you, Cliff. <laughs> I say that because someone in this room today is say, you know what? Something happened on January 31st, 2016. Something happened, and I got grace 
in a greater way. And this morning's conversation is grace is greater than our mistakes. Question, got any? Got any mistakes? Any failures? Any shortcomings? I'll answer that for you. I know you do. Because mankind has been making mistakes ever since the garden in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sunk their teeth into the forbidden fruit. And how did God respond to their sin? How did God respond to their mistakes? How did God respond to their rebellion with his amazing grace? Promising that one day, born of the seed of woman, the Messiah would come and he would crush the head of the serpent of the evil one, making a way for us to be right with God. Listen, from that point on, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 to Revelation, we see a God who's obsessed with pouring out his grace on messed up people. Now, Hebrews 11 is sometimes referred to as God's hall of faith. You know, it's the, it's the Cooperstown, it's the Canton, Ohio of Scripture. But if you carefully look at the list of names that are listed in Hebrews 11, God's honor roll, you quickly see that every one of those people were, were mistakeful, were full of mistakes. I don't know if that's a word, but it should be, mistakeful, right? <laughs> mistakeful. That's when you misplace your stake and you're not, no longer full, okay? okay. Anyhow, which is why <laughs> if we're ever going to get this word grace, if we're ever going to hear it with fresh ears, one of the things we need to understand is our need for it our need for grace. Bottom line, I need grace, and you need grace. We can't talk about, but we can't talk about grace without talking about sin. Now, some people try to do that. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you appreciate grace. I, I, I don't know how you embrace grace without understanding sin. I, I don't know how you talk about Jesus Christ being the Savior of the world and have that mean anything unless we talk about sin. I, I like how Max Lucada writes in this awesome book called Grace, More Than We Deserve and Greater Than We Imagine. The video was the promo from, that's why it ended so abruptly, right? It's a promo from his book, right? It's a great book, Grace, More Than We Deserve, Greater Than We Imagine. Here's what he writes. All ships that land at the shore of grace weigh anchor from the port of sin. We must start where God starts. We won't appreciate what grace does until we understand who we are. We are rebels. We deserve to die. We are incarcerated by our past, our low-road choices, and our high-minded pride. We have been found guilty. I understand the Bible, God's Word, our authority on all things, on Christ, on the church, and on His grace, almost always talks about grace within or against the backdrop of sin. Have you ever gone into a jewelry store to look at a diamond? Right? Never, right? No one ever has, right? You know? What kind of backdrop do they use to put that diamond ring on, right? Black, right? right? They put it black, right? Because you could see everything. You see the beauty of it. So almost every time we see grace mentioned in Scripture, it's always with the backdrop of sin. But now God, Romans 5, but now God has, Romans 3 rather, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him. I can get a drink of water. I gotta slow down. I, I get so fired up that some some people say I talk fast. Yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> Is it true? 
I think I breathed once or twice. Okay. <laughs> Romans 3. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Turn to the person to your right and left and tell them, this is true for you. This is true. And now the backdrop. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Again, the backdrop of grace. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Question, just who is in need of grace? Who has fallen short of God's glorious standard? Everyone. All. Turn to the person to your right and to your left and and say, hey, God's talking about you. Now, now why did you have so much fun doing that? You vindictive people, you. Now, now, now let me tell you what we tend to do when we we think of sin or we read a verse like that. We're like, well, sure, I mean, I've sinned, but I haven't sinned sin, right? I mean, we, we start comparing ourselves to other people, and we think, well, I've sinned, but I mean, have you watched those reality TV shows? Have you been on Instagram lately? I mean, I, I'm doing pretty good compared to those people. And so we kind of dismiss our sin by comparing ourselves to other people. Have you ever done that? I'm not as bad as they are. But listen, you know what we're doing when we compare ourselves to other people? and we feel that we're better than them, guess what we're doing? We're sinning because that's pride. That's self-righteousness. In fact, our pride is probably uglier to God than the very sin we're pointing out in the other lives of other people. Get it? Good. So everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's glorious standard. And listen, when the Bible talks about sin, it, it talks about sin kind of like it's a sickness or a virus that we have. And that's why God said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We were healed from this sickness. We were healed from this virus. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, sin is the sickness that we all, like sheep, are infected with, and grace is the cure. Grace is the antidote. But listen, grace means nothing to people who don't recognize their own sickness. Have you ever had trouble admitting that you were sick? Anybody ever had trouble with that? I remember many years ago waking up on a Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. with the dull pain in my back, and like it was a kidney stone, and I'm like, I'm good. Got in the shower, I'm good. I can go in there and preach. I wasn't good. <laughs> I went to the ER, right? You know, I had a trouble admitting I was sick till God put me on my knees. So the Bible says that all of us have sinned, that that's our diagnosis. And then it gives us the prognosis in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Again, we all have this infection called sin, and here's what it leads to. The wages of sin is, is death. Remember, death is separation. Physical death is separation of our, of our spirit from our body. Spiritual death is our separation from our very being from the presence of God. 
That's how the Bible discusses sin. It talks about sin as a type of virus uh, that is spread throughout the whole world. It even talks about how it originated. It even identifies patient zero, if you will, the first infected person. Romans 12, I mean 5.12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Again, it all started with Adam. So everyone has this infection. Everyone has death coming. We've all been diagnosed, and then we're introduced to this word grace. We're told that there's an antidote for this infection, this virus that we all carry. And that's good news, right? Romans 5.15, for the sin of the one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and the gift of forgiveness to many through the other man, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look, sin is great, but God's grace is greater. It's greater than sin. It's greater than our mistakes. It's greater than our failures. Question, what do you feel is your greatest sin? Okay, turn to the person to your right and left and share that with them. <laughs> and if you're here visiting, come up front. We'd like you to share first to welcome you. We're to beat you into our group, right? No, we're not going to do that. What do you feel is your greatest sin? That may have happened last week or years and years ago. It may be some dark, ugly secret that no one else knows. Or maybe something really obvious that everybody else loves to point out. But regardless, I stand on the authority of the Word of God to tell you that grace is greater than. Grace is greater than. It's greater than that mistake. And it's greater than that mistake. It's greater than that sin. It's greater than that failure. Amen? Turn to, your per- to the person to your right and left. Look in the eye and say, grace is greater than. I understand, whatever you put on the other side of the equation, grace is greater. Whatever sin comes into your head, whatever mistakes that you made, whatever, uh, whatever you regret the most, whatever season of life you wish never happened, whatever secret sin you hope nobody ever, ever, ever finds out about, grace is greater than. Grace is greater than. Grace is greater than. Amen. And listen, when we really begin to understand the greatness of grace, uh, that word makes all the difference. Uh, That word gives us freedom. That word changes us. That word bears fruit. That word gives us a hope that is greater than anything. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you've done, no matter how severe the infection or how debilitating the pain of your sin, grace is greater than. Grace is greater than. Paul continues in verse 16 and says, And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we were guilty of many sins. I love those two words, even though, even though. We serve and worship an even though God, even though we were guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life to everyone. What does grace do for us? 
Here's what it does for us. It, it, it brings a right relationship with God and it brings new life to everyone. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. And now you can miss a lot, but don't miss that. Don't miss that grace is greater than your sin. And that it makes you right with God. And that it gives you a new life. That it gives you a second chance. And brothers and sisters, that's true. That's true for everyone. That's true for me. That's true for you. That's true for the person to your right and to your left. Yes, everyone is sinned. And through Jesus Christ, everyone can be made right with God and find new life. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. But unfortunately, sometimes grace gets missed. And listen, I, I, think, I think it helps us to really get the word grace when we, we kind of look at what happens in its absence. I mean, just, just what do things look like uh, when grace is not there? Maple Grove, do you know what you call talking about God and leaving out grace? You know what you call that? You call that religion. Now, you might not expect to hear this at church or to hear this from a preacher, but I don't like religion. I especially don't like organized religion. It creeps me out. I don't like religion. I don't like religious people. Jesus didn't like them either. I mean, Jesus' harshest rebukes were not given to sinners and tax collectors and thieves and prostitutes, but to the religious. Go home this week and read Matthew chapter 23. Jesus outside the temple. You wonder why they arrested him that day? <laughs> you can, woe to you, you religious people. You're messed up. Again, religion is what is left when you take grace out of the equation. Another, you know, the gospel minus grace equals religion. And religion is not greater than your sin. Religion will not save you. Uh, what is religion? Religion is our attempt to earn God's favor by following rules and regulations. You see, religion teaches, believes, religion teaches, believes, and shackles us to this idea that we can, that we can earn God's favor, uh, that we can somehow merit his mercy and his grace. But listen, that totally undercuts the gospel because the whole point of the gospel is that we cannot be good enough, that we'll never be good enough, that you and I are, are, are unable to do enough good and to avoid enough bad to somehow balance the scales of God's perfect justice in our favor. In fact, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the righteous things we do and he described them how God sees them. All our righteous acts, all our righteousness, all our righteous acts, all our righteousness acts. If you're a visitor, I are a communicator, believe it or not, okay? All our righteous acts are like what? Filthy rags, filthy rags. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he gives a, a, his resume, hey, check out, check out all my righteous acts, they're pretty awesome. And then he says this, I consider them what? garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Bottom line, trying to measure up to God's glorious standard on our own by keeping a bunch of rules will never be greater than our sin. Are you tracking with me? And what I want to do now is I, I want to look at a chart that 
that, that I came across this week that, that, that compares what religion looks like and what grace looks like. And so here's the chart. You can see right there. And, and so the key word for religion is do, that you have to do more, and that if you do enough, if you work hard enough, then just maybe you'll make the cut and get on the team. Grace, on the other hand, is based on what's already been done for us. It's based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Grace means it's a done deal. Grace means it's done, and it means it's a really good deal. Next, the focus of religion is on, is on the outward things. And you see this all the time when, when Jesus is speaking to the spiritual elite of his day. He would say things like, hey, you, you, you honor me uh, with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Or, or he'd say things like, hey, you look really good. You're wearing all the right stuff, but you know what you're like? You're like a white tomb, and inside you are full of dead man's bones, right? Your appearance looks good. You're faking everybody out on all the externals, but it's not real. On the other hand, the focus of grace is on the inward. The focus of grace is on the heart. It's on the inside of the cup. It's on transformation from the inside out. And next, the foundation of religion is following rules. And listen, what typically happens in religion is we, we come up with new rules that aren't even in the Bible. We say, well, if you're really a Christian, right? If you're really a Christian, right? You would be a Patriots fan, right? <laughs> no, no, because then you'd be very heartbroken like I've been all week, okay? If you're really a Christian, if you're really religious, then not only will you follow God's rules, but you'll follow our rules too. Meanwhile, grace is based on relationships. And so that means our, our relationship with God isn't up in the air every time we mess up. It's based on relationship. Next, what is the motivation? How does religion get people to do what it wants? The motivation for religion is shame. Religion controls people by making them feel bad about themselves. Now, now, maybe you grew up in a family like that or attended a church like that that embraced that approach. It's a religious approach where, where they, they use shame to, to make you feel bad. And, you know, a good boy, a good little girl, if you're really good, you're going to behave this way. Now, now, I do think it's important to point out that sometimes what is making us feel bad is conviction, and conviction is a good thing. I, I mean, if we are sinning, we should feel bad. And we should feel convicted to change. But listen, conviction without the gospel, conviction without the good news, conviction without the cure, conviction without grace is nothing more than religion. On the other hand, the motivation to live right for grace is gratitude. It's where we live with this massive appreciation for what Jesus Christ did on the cross where we're blown away that, that Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. It's, it's where we're speechless and wrecked that a father who loved his son so much will let that son die a brutal death just so that we could be part of the family. And so it's our gratitude. It's not shame. It's our gratitude that motivates us to live a life that brings honor and glory to God. Get it? Good. Next, the feeling of religion. But religion leaves you with feelings of fear or frustration. 
You see, there's either this fear of condemnation, you know, like this idea that, oh man, Jesus better not come back right now because I just thought a really bad thought. And if he comes back right now, bad thought, I just messed up and I just messed up again. This fear, right? I'm never right with God, this fear. Or, or, or this frustration because you're trying to do the right thing and you're thinking you're supposed to do the right thing, but somehow you always fall short of doing that. You know the good you ought to do, but you don't do it. Either frustration or fear. But grace, on the other hand, gives us this feeling of freedom. We feel free from the pressure to measure up because our measuring up has already been taken care of by Jesus Christ. He nailed all the requirements of the law to the cross. Amen? Freedom. Finally, the outcome of religion is pride or guilt. One of the two. Understand, either we're going to sit around and we're going to be proud Man, I'm so much better than those people in that reality. I watch cops, man. There's some messed up people. You know, I was on Instagram. There's some really sinners out there. Did you see the news? I thank you, Lord Jesus, that I'm not like those wicked people out there. You know, that, that feeling of, of pride. I am such a great rule keeper, God. Or we feel guilt because we think I haven't done enough. I messed up again, and I'll never measure up. Do you know what the outcome of grace is? It's love. Understand, when our focus is on, the, on his grace in our lives, when our focus is on his grace in our lives, we will experience a love beyond reason, a perfect love that will drive out all fear. But not only that, we will also express a love beyond all reason to others as we become a beautiful reflection of his grace to those who sin, hurt, and make mistakes against us which, by the way, is the life-changing, relationship-changing, church-changing, and world-changing truth that we, we are going to plunge the depths of next week in our conversation. Grace is greater than our hurts. See, what we'll discover next week is that we only, we only understand, we only see, we will only experience grace to the degree that we give grace to the person who hurt us the most and deserves it the least. We'll see next week that we only will see, understand, and experience grace to the degree, to the degree that we give grace to the person who hurt us the most and deserves it the least. But that's next week. That's just a free commercial. Hopefully it'll bring you back and not scare you away. Bottom line, grace is greater than religion. Brothers and sisters, religious rule keeping is not an effective treatment for the sin virus that we have. Instead, grace is what we need. However, to fully understand the significance of, of this antidote called grace, it, it's not enough for us to simply to, to, see, uh, to, to see our need for, to understand what it's like when it's missing. You, you see, to really get grace, we need more than an explanation. We need an experience. Uh, did you know that Jesus Christ never used the word grace? You know, grace is used hundred plus times throughout the rest of the New Testament, but never, never, never by Jesus. However, we learn more about grace from Jesus than anyone else as we watch Jesus Christ encounter men and women and pour out his grace on them. Because the most effective way to understand grace is through experience. A guy named E.B. White puts it this way, grace can be dissected like a frog, but the thing dies in the process. Sure, you, you can take an academic approach to understanding grace. You can read the definition out of a theological dictionary. You can do word studies, and that's all fine and good and can be helpful. But if that's all we do, 
It's like dissecting a frog. You're going to kill it. You see, there's no way to dissect it without killing it. Grace, the power of grace has to be experienced. And so that's why the Gospels are mostly stories, because story is experience. And here's an example from John chapter 8. Jesus is teaching in a courtyard one morning, and uh, we don't know what he's teaching on, but whatever it was, his, his teaching is interrupted by this angry mob that kind of just bursts through the gates. And everyone turns their attention from Jesus to, to this mob, a mob that is made up of religious leaders, the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day. And being pushed along in, in front of them is, is this woman that was caught uh, in the act of adultery. She's probably not dressed or maybe has a bed sheet wrapped around her, and, and she's shoved to the ground. She's thrown to the dirt right in front of Jesus. And the spiritual leaders look at Jesus and say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law tells us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And at first, Jesus doesn't say anything. And I guarantee that his calmness and his silence really wigged them out. Like, no, this is not good. And then Jesus stoops down and he starts to write in the dirt. We don't know what he was writing. Uh, it's always fun to speculate, right, that he's writing the sins of those who are holding stones there. But there probably was not enough sand to, to do all that, right? One of the religious leaders says to Jesus, what do you say? What should we do? And Jesus stands up and just kind of looks around and says, well, I'll tell you what. If any of you are without sin... If any of you have never made a mistake, you go ahead and you throw the first stone. And he goes back to writing in the dirt. And one by one, 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 by one the stones drop until it's just Jesus with this woman. And she looks at him, and when she looks in his eyes, she does not see condemnation. She doesn't see judgment. She sees compassion. She sees grace. And he says, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to condemn you? Now you need to understand that Jesus knows her, right? He knows her. He knows her since he began to knit her in her mother's womb. He knows the number of the hairs on her head. Jesus has kept the tears of that woman in a bottle in heaven since the day she was born. Jesus knows her. He knows about her sin. He knows about her sexual morality. And she knows that he knows. And so this, this is guilt. This is sin. She's caught in the act. The door's ripped open. She's, she's pulled from the bed. I mean, there's no question about her guilt. It, it, it's the worst day of her life. Her darkest secret has been found out, but the worst day of her life becomes the best day of her life because in her brokenness, she meets Jesus. And she finds out that grace is greater than her sin, that grace is greater than her mistakes, and that grace is even greater than the secret she was trying to hide. Where are your accusers? Did even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. In other words, Jesus said, my grace is greater than your sin. Now, in my studies for this conversation, I ran across this, this saying, Every saint has a past, and every sinner has a future. I understand, if you're a saint, you need to remember that you have a past. And you know what? We would be better saints if we remembered our past, and remember, if we remember the pit from which Jesus Christ pulled us out of. Amen? Amen? 
And if you are a sinner, then by God's grace, you can have a wonderful future if you come to Christ and trust him as your Lord and Savior. Now notice the order of the words. It's very important. Note that he did not say, sin no more and then I will not condemn you. That's what religious people say. Clean up your act and then I will accept you. Jesus says, I will forgive you and then I'll give you the power to clean up your act. Religion says, change or I will condemn you. It uses fear and intimidation to make people measure up. Grace says, I have forgiven you, now let me change your life. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we don't change in order to be accepted. We change because we already have been accepted. We don't change in order to be accepted. We change because in Christ we already have been accepted. Get it? Good. And and listen, nothing... There's nothing more motivating and empowering, nothing that can bring about a new life better than grace. Grace does what the law never could do. Grace, it's more than a verb, it's more than a noun, it's more present than past. Grace didn't just happen, grace happens. I understand that the same work that God did through Christ long ago on the cross is the work God does through Christ right now in our lives. So let God do his work. Let grace trump your arrest record. Let grace trump your critics. Let grace trump your guilty conscience. See yourself for what you are, God's work, personal remodeling project. Not a work to yourself, but a work in his hands. No longer defined by your failures, but refined by your failures. Trusting less in what you do and more in what Jesus Christ has already done. That's grace, and grace is greater than your mistakes. Brothers and sisters, it's January 31st, 2016, and I have good news of great joy that is for every person in this room. Grace is greater than our mistakes. And by the way, that that is exactly what the three mistake-ridden people I started off this conversation with discovered thousands of years ago. Paul, a, a man who murdered Christians, who had Christians arrested one day found amazing grace and and discovered a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, thank God, of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason, I will show mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who will believe in him and receive eternal life. And the woman in Samaria we meet in John chapter 4, shacking up with the guy. You know, she's had five failed marriages. Uh, She found amazing grace and an offer that she could not refuse, living water so that she would never thirst again. And and I so love what this lady said when she ran back into town. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? He knows everything I ever did. He knows the stuff that I've hidden from everybody. Nobody knows. None of my five husbands knew. The guy I'm living with didn't know. My mom and dad, no one has ever known. He knows everything about me, and yet he still wants me. This is amazing grace. And then this mistakeful lady from John chapter 8. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, and Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. By the way, 
Where are your accusers? Who are your accusers? Are they someone from your past? A parent, child, a failed marriage, a failed relationship? Someone in your past, someone in your present? Who are your accusers? Is it even like in your own head, in your own heart, accusing you? Brothers and sisters, grace is greater than your accusers. Grace is greater than your mistakes. Grace is greater than your sin. Amen? You know, one of the biggest problems in Christianity is that a lot of Christians have been forgiven. They receive grace, but they do not live in it. They continue to feel guilt and shame for what they've done instead of living in the joy and peace of God's grace. And listen, some of that Some of that blame, if there is blame, rests on the church and on other Jesus followers who love to keep a record of wrongs and hold stuff over the heads of people indefinitely. Like It happened a long time ago, but it's still there, right? I got this list of where you hurt me, of the mistakes you made, and I am never going to let you let that go ever. But Jesus says, Grace is greater than our mistakes. Grace is greater than. And, and here's my prayer that during the, you know, during the next few weeks, that we will encounter God's grace in such a way that we won't just be able to explain it, but that we'll experience it. And, and that we won't just read stories about grace, but that we will be stories about this grace, this grace that is greater than, that's greater than our failures, that's greater than our mistakes, that's greater than our shortcomings, greater than our rebellion, greater than our sin. Amen? Amen. Would you guys stand and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we humbly come into your presence, and God, there's no use hiding from you. God, when we're in your presence, we're just like that woman, Lord. We, we, uh, we have been drugged from our sin, and, and, and God, it's, it's real. And, and God, sometimes we forget that your grace is greater. And God, I pray for those in this room who, the accuser, maybe it's someone from their past, maybe it's their own mind, maybe it's just the evil one who continues to beat them down with his condemnation and his accusations, God. I, I pray that, that everyone in this room, God, just embraces the truth that grace is greater than our mistakes. It's greater than our sin. It's greater than our failures. And God, I pray for those who are still wondering about this grace thing and, and, and they're trying to figure you out, God. God, I, I pray that they will, you know, give me a call this week. Come up and talk to me up front afterwards, Lord. And God, we thank you for your amazing grace and that it's a firm foundation that we could stand on. Amen.